the life of any church, there are certain milestones that you reach as a church body. And um, at Rock Valley Bible Church, it's really no different. There have been several dates in our short history that have been milestones for us. Reflecting upon our church, I think about uh, April 5th, 1997. It's a milestone date for us. That happened to be my 30th birthday. I remember it well. I happened to be preaching that Sunday. We had some folks visiting our church, and uh, this is often our custom. Uh, this was in DeKalb, Illinois. It's often our custom. We took visitors, and we invited them into our home. And uh, so we got to know these people a little bit. We found out that they were from Rockford and um, really began to uh, start coming to our church. In, in many ways, I see that that day was uh, the day my ministry started in terms of a kind of official role as a pastor, my 30th birthday. Because that first family came down, and then over the course of the next year, three other families joined that family. And at Kishwaukee Bible Church, we sensed, hey, maybe God's doing something here in Rockford. And so on July 2nd, 1998, is another milestone date for us, we started a, a Thursday evening flock Bible study. We have flocks at our church, which are basically home Bible studies to help equip all of you in the Word, to help provide opportunities for fellowship and caring and sharing for one another. And, and uh, we did that down at Kishwaukee Bible Church too. And we did that up here in Rockford. It's just Thursday evenings. We met three Thursday evenings a month and uh, began meeting. And then exactly a year later, July 2nd, 2000, was a, another milestone date. That day, a small group of us were there, about eight to ten families at that time. We began renting out a, uh, a small church building on Sunday nights. This church didn't have Sunday night church services, and so we kind of came in and took over the building <clears throat> and uh, started having Sunday evening services. It's that point that I, I began officially preaching and monologuing on, on that Sunday, and, and that was a great milestone date. And another one was May 18th, 2001. It's when we when um, I, I quit my job and was allowed to come on staff at Rock Valley Bible Church. Uh, Kishwaukee Bible Church in DeKalb basically provided a good portion of my salary in those early days. And um, by September, I was actually full-time. The church supported partially up here and supported by, Rock Valley, by Kishwaukee Bible Church in DeKalb as well. Another milestone date, March 3rd, 2002. We transitioned from Sunday night to Sunday mornings right here in this facility right here. And God's been gracious to provide us this, this wonderful building. It has every room that we need. Um, we have the church available to us Sunday morning. We could use it Sunday nights if we want. Um, I know men's equippers, we meet here Saturday mornings. available for us. God provided that for us, a great answer to prayer. I won't get into all the details of that. But on another date was November 2nd, 2003. Lance Milton was installed in the office of deacon. And on September 5th, 2005, Gordy Bell was installed as an elder. And now we've come to another milestone date in the life of our church, January 21st, 2007. The end of our service this morning, we'll be installing Doug Sosnowski. He's sitting over there as an office of deacon at Rock Valley Bible Church. At Rock Valley Bible Church, we believe the Lord has given two offices to the church. He's given the office of elder and he's given the office of deacon. And uh, you can look at for the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They describe the qualifications of an overseer, which is an elder, which is a pastor. Those terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament. In the first seven verses of 1 Timothy 3, it talks about that. In verses 8 through 13, it talks about the qualifications for a deacon. And uh, we see those as the only two offices that God has given to the church. And so we have elders and deacons. 
Uh, right now, I'm an elder. Gordy Bell's an elder. Lance Milton's a deacon, and uh, Doug Sosnowski will soon be a deacon. When you think about the roles, I like to kind of put my hands up here and say, okay, here's a, here's a spectrum. There's spiritual things over here and there are physical things over here. And an, and an elder is here close to the spiritual things. And a, and a deacon is here close to the physical things. And, and an elder's responsibility is more upon the spiritual needs of people in praying and ministering of the word and, and helping people, guiding them, counseling them spiritually. And a deacon is likewise one who emphasizes things physically. Deacons are in charge of, in the early church, like Acts chapter 6, your first deacons involved in serving tables. Uh, you see them involved in a lot of the, the building maintenance or the finances or really helping the poor people or helping things of that nature. Just really just getting the physical tasks done in the church. And, and so that's where it is, but it's not like this. It's, it's kind of more like this because a pastor has to involve himself in physical details, has to involve himself with helping people physically. Otherwise, the faith is useless, right? And, and a deacon, you know, oftentimes there are spiritual implications to lots of things they do, but when push comes to shove, the elders focus spiritually and the deacons focus physically. Those are the offices of the church that God has given to us. And um, we're going to increase that leadership team to four of us. And I am I'm thrilled with that. And so, in fact, so thrilled that I'm delaying my final exposition of the book of Colossians this morning to, to speak about leadership in the church. You're already turned to Mark chapter 10, I trust. If not, you can turn there. Mark chapter 10. Verses 32 through 45, which Andy read for us earlier, these are verses that give us insight into what spiritual leadership is about. Jesus is going to describe for us what spiritual leadership is. He's going to show us what spiritual leadership is not. If you want to boil it all down, you say, okay, take this away from my message. What, what is spiritual leadership all about? Here's what it's about. It's about selfless service. The way to lead people spiritually is not by manipulation or not by special technique or not through intimidation. On the contrary, spiritual leadership takes place when you give of yourself completely and sacrificially to others. That's why my message this morning is entitled Servant Leadership because this is really what spiritual leadership is all about. In his excellent book entitled Spiritual Leadership, J. Oswald Sanders writes the following. He says, True leadership is achieved not by reducing men to one service, but in giving oneself in selfless service to them. I want to read that quote again because that, that summarizes so much. J. Oswald Sanders says, True leadership is achieved not by reducing men to one service, but in giving oneself in selfless service to them. And really, this is the heart of my message this morning. The, the greatest leader is really the one who serves greater than all. And I'll tell you, this message this morning is very appropriate as we think about installing a, a deacon whose function it is, right, to focus on the physical things of the church and to serve the church. But my message this morning isn't going to be so much about the particular duties of a deacon. I've addressed that at other times you look up my messages on the internet, that's kind of there. But my, my focus this morning is upon the attitude of any deacon of a church ought to have. Or any leader in the church, really. He is to be a servant, just like the greatest leader who ever walked the planet, Jesus Christ. 
Well, let's dig into my first point. Here it is. Servant leadership is willing to suffer. Suffer. Servant leadership is willing to suffer. And, and that's what verses 32 through 34 are about. Jesus is with His disciples going up to Jerusalem. The Passover is near and Jesus is soon to die. He very well may be in a, in a big train of people, crowd of people coming from Galilee um, down south to Jerusalem, but it talks about going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's on a hill. And wherever you come to Jerusalem, you're always going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And as His disciples were with Him, uh, I believe they knew His end was near. Ever since Jesus took a, a spiritual retreat with them to Caesarea Philippi, which was in the north, and Jesus revealed Himself to them as the Christ, the Son of the living God, they knew that His days were numbered. They knew that Jesus was going to suffer many things and eventually be killed. And they knew the place where they always killed the prophets. It's Jerusalem. So that's where they're headed, up to Jerusalem. The end is near. And it's very curious as they're walking along... Jesus isn't being dragged into the city as if He really didn't want to go there. I mean, He was not the, the little child screaming and kicking, not wanting to go into the dentist's office. He wasn't the employer not wanting to speak with the employee who He's about to fire. On the contrary, Jesus was eager and willing to enter into the city. In fact, if you look at anything, it was Jesus who was dragging His disciples into the city. Look what it says in verse 32. Jesus was walking ahead of them. I believe there was a skip in His step. He was eager to accomplish the work in Jerusalem. And when you think about that, it's, it's astonishing. Jesus was the one going to His execution chamber. And He was the one leading the way. Why was He leading the way? Is because He was willing to suffer. We read in verse 32 that His disciples were amazed and fearful. They'd anticipated how difficult a time this was going to be and didn't quite know what to, know what to think about, but were amazed that Jesus was out in front of them and, and were fearful of the, the things coming upon them. And I think Jesus sensed that. He took them aside. Amongst this whole crowd of people coming from Galilee, we see that he took the twelve aside, probably probably twelve disciples, pulled them aside. He said, Okay, guys, let's let's think about this. And these are the words he told them. He said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him and spit on Him and scourge Him and kill Him and three days later He will rise again. It's hardly an encouragement, is it? But Jesus was, was, was going over this again and again. It's actually the third time in which He said this. The other time was Mark chapter 8, verse 31. You can even read it there. After Peter said, you're the Christ, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And over in chapter 9, verse 31 as well, he said he was teaching his disciples the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Now, there's a sense where verse 32 said they didn't understand it. But back in chapter 8, 
they did understand it because Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That can't happen. So it was, it was kind of in a fog. They, they knew something was going to happen and they clearly understood his words, but they didn't quite, quite fully grasp it. They were, they were amazed and yet they were fearful. But Jesus pulled him aside again and said, listen guys, here's what's going to happen. And really the point, I believe, of these verses of what Jesus is telling them is that the sufferings of Christ didn't come by accident. It was no accident that Jesus suffered. He knew full well what was about to take place in Jerusalem. It meant his death. And he didn't die in Jerusalem as a result of some political ploy gone astray or he wasn't crucified in Jerusalem due to poor timing of his revolution. Rather, his death was according to the predetermined predestined will of God. In fact, it says in Revelation that he was slain from the foundation of the world. In eternity past, God knew that the Christ would come and suffer. That was just the plan. That's how it was. And Jesus now is bringing it into time and showing them how it's going to take place. But Jesus, in the midst of that, knowing all that, was willing to suffer, which is our application this morning. Now, admittedly, the sufferings of Jesus is far different than the sufferings of any leader of the church will experience. But suffering has always been and always will be the reality of those who lead the church spiritually. Paul's own description of his ministry showed how it was filled with suffering. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Paul said this, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated. And are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. And when we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world. The dregs of all things, even until now. Considered himself to be the, the, the scour, the scum at the bottom of your pot. Rages to be scraped up and discarded. That's how Paul viewed his ministry. And this is only one passage, just a few words. There are many passages where Paul alludes to his sufferings. Oftentimes he calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes he goes through all the tremendous sufferings and difficulties that he had. And Paul knew the suffering that took place for those positions in spiritual leadership. And today it's no different. Those leaders of the church face suffering. Need to face it willingly. You know, today... Some face little by way of suffering. I would put most pastors in America face very little by way of suffering. For the most part, the suffering American church leaders, you know where it comes from? It comes from within the church. You know, those who would stand even nationally and make some kind of doctrinal stand are often shot down. They're often called names. They're often ostracized. They're often taken apart because of differences in, in doctrine. It's a shame. Sometimes the suffering comes within the church. Disgruntled church members, right? Let their disappointments be known. It takes place in the church. But this, this, is, this is small, small suffering as compared to what some other leaders in the church face. Right? I think about faithful leaders in foreign lands. We know of a, of a pastor that we have helped. We've helped their church there in Nepal. was kidnapped recently. And those of you who are regulars know of, uh, of how the Maoists kidnapped him to try to extort money out of him, even though he's doing, doing well. In other countries, pastors are intimidated. In the former Soviet Union, countless pastors were imprisoned and tortured. And in Romania and even in China today, news comes back of the many pastors in prisons 
the many pastors who are beaten, the many religious leaders who are, who are taken captive. Many church leaders have even taken it to the extreme and gone to their death in following Christ. Think about the many martyrs throughout the years. And there have been many church leaders been martyred for the faith of Jesus Christ. And uh, what we're living in today with America is very little suffering externally. Um, I remember John Piper calling it uh, Disneyland. <laughs> we live in Disneyland, folks. Because we've been graced by a, a good government and a good authority structure. And um, you know, we may argue that things are getting worse, but they're far better today than they are in many lands. But the sufferings of Jesus went far beyond any sufferings any spiritual leader would face today. Not only did Jesus suffer to the point of death, which He did, He suffered the punishment of the wrath of God that our sins deserve, which is far worse than death. You know, when Jesus was delivered to the chief priests and the, the scribes to be handed over to the Gentiles and killed upon the cross, it was only as if God was just setting the table. You know, you put your plates upon the table so you can take and start eating of the food. Or so you can pour your, your milk into your cup. Well, when Jesus was put upon the cross, it was as if the table is set now for God to take the cup of His wrath and pour it upon His Son. He wasn't going to move. He was there. Love held Him there. And He took the wrath of Almighty God, the punishment for sins that we deserved. And that punishment and that suffering is far far beyond what any church leader has ever and will ever experience. And to make matters worse, the life of Christ, is it was completely undeserved. In John chapter 15, verse 24, it says they hated Jesus without a cause. He was sinless, and yet He suffered the fate that our sin deserved. He became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. You know, much of the suffering that takes place among leaders in the church of Christ comes as fully deserved. I know that I have suffered the hands of others and oftentimes, oftentimes that suffering has come as a result of my sin. It has come. But with Jesus, it was different. I deserve suffering. Jesus didn't deserve any suffering. But He was willing to take it all. That's why He was leading the procession on the way up to Jerusalem. And His willingness to suffer ought to be true of every leader in the church. Servant leadership is willing to suffer. Servant leadership is willing to endure the difficulties that come with leading the church. Servant leadership is willing to spend and be spent to give all for Christ and to sacrifice all for the church. That's what Doug is being called to this morning. That's what I'm being reminded of this morning. That's what Gordy's being reminded of and Lance as well. Second, servant leadership doesn't seek for status. This is really a negative example. We see James and John pursuing the wrong way. They were seeking their own status and exaltation. They wanted the position of prominence and they were wanting it by being appointed into that position. All right, we see their attempt here in verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. Now the timing of this discussion with Jesus couldn't have been worse. Jesus had just spoken about His upcoming death. And it wasn't going to be pleasant. He was going to be mocked, 
spit upon, scourged, killed, killed on a cross. And it's almost as if James and John didn't even hear what Jesus was saying. As Jesus was speaking this, they were thinking, about, okay, yeah, maybe now's the time that we can talk to him about this, and we've been talking about it, you know. And, and they're thinking in their minds, and Jesus, as he's talking, is just kind of moving his lips in their perspective, can't even hear, and then they jump in and request for this. Timing was all wrong. Asking for the opportunity to sit the right and left of Jesus in his glory would be like um, asking your boss for a raise just after he made a company-wide announcement that we as a company are declaring bankruptcy. Can I have a raise? Or like talking to your boss who just fired you. Can I have some more vacation time? It's like hearing one of your close friends tell you that he's dying of cancer soon. And you say, can I have your CD collection? That's how inappropriate it was. Just they were in it for themselves, seeking status and reputation and power for themselves. And even you can get a sense of how they tried to manipulate the situation. Verse 35, they first wanted to secure a favorable response. Jesus, they said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They wanted Jesus to respond like Herod did to his stepdaughter. Whatever you ask of me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom, is what they wanted to hear Jesus say. But Jesus was wiser than Herod. He could sense their manipulation. I mean, he sensed it in the religious leaders, and he sensed it here in his disciples as well. It didn't take great revelation to know. It didn't take great revelation from God, right, to know that their motives were wrong. I mean, it just took a little perception and awareness because Jesus has been through this before. Back in chapter 9, when Jesus told them about how they're going to deliver him into the hands of men, kill him, <laughs> they're walking on the way to Capernaum and they were discussing something, right? You remember that? <clears throat> they were discussing along the way about who was the greatest. And again, they just missed it. Jesus here is about to die and then they were concerned about who the greatest one is. So Jesus, rather than giving them half the kingdom, simply says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And then they shoot for the moon. Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Now, the magnitude of this question was enormous. They're asking to sit at the right and the left of Jesus in glory in the kingdom. It's like asking to be the vice president of a Fortune 500 company simply because you're a friend of the president and CEO. Hey, can I be a vice president and enjoy other prestige and decision-making? Can I do that? It's like going up to the President of the United States and saying, can I sit on your cabinet so, cabinet so I can have your ear and dictate the policies of the United States of America by counseling you? I mean, sitting at the right and left of Jesus would allow James and John to advise Jesus how to run the universe. They shot for the moon and beyond. And Jesus acknowledged they shot for the moon. He says in verse 38, You do not know what you are asking. God's kingdom doesn't work on the basis of political favors and appointments. In God's kingdom, it's not I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. No, in God's kingdom, the way up is actually down. It's the way it's always been for God's servants. Moses, before he led the people out of Egypt... Spent 40 years in exile in Midian, pondering his choice to endure the ill treatment 
the people of God rather than enjoying the passing pleasure of sin. Forty years he waited. David was anointed king, but he waited a long time in, and in humility and deference, gave deference to Saul for years until Saul was murdered at the end of 1 Samuel. The Apostle Paul was used so mightily. God struck him with a thorn in the flesh that tormented him often. And the reason why God struck him was so that he would keep him from exalting himself. That's how it always is in church leadership. The way up is, is down and suffering and difficult. I mean, do you know that the reason why Jesus is so high and exalted in the kingdom today is precisely because of how low and shameful is death? In Philippians 2, we read, Although Jesus existed in the form of God, He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right? Like, hold on to it, never letting it go. Rather, He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So He came, God came in to be a man. And being found in appearance of man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So He died as a man. And then it said, Even death on a cross... Jesus went from the highest of heights to the lowest of depths. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then Paul writes here, verse 9 of Philippians 2, For this reason also, it's precisely because Jesus went from so high to so low that God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reason why Jesus exalted to the right hand of God with a name that's above every name to, to which every knee will bow someday and which every tongue will confess is because He went down. Because the path up is down. He's the greatest creature in the universe. He went to the depths of humanity dying on a cross. He is God in the flesh, the firstborn of all creation. And therefore, God highly exalted Him. Do you want to sit at the right hand, right and left of Jesus? Well, you need to experience the depths then of the suffering that Jesus endured. William Hendrickson said in his commentary, just to put it real simply, he said, a request for glory is a request for suffering. A request for glory is a request for suffering. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in verse 38. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. He's talking about his upcoming death, using them in symbolic terms, talking about his, his cup, right? talking about a baptism, talking about an immersion in the troubles. You remember in the garden, in the midst of his trouble and anguish and turmoil, he said, um, if possible, remove this cup from me. What's he talking about? He's talking about the upcoming crucifixion, the wrath of God being poured upon him. The baptism is talking about just a, being immersed in the, the troubles and the pain. Right? The cup, commentators have said, is the active obedience of Jesus, actively taking the suffering upon by Himself. The baptism is the immersion, the passive obedience of Christ, just to kind of take the wrath upon Himself. Both of these He brought to attention of the people of James and John. Can you drink the cup? Can you be baptized with what I'm baptized? Listen, you guys have requested glory, and a request for glory is a request for suffering. Now, with clueless confidence, they said, We're able. We are able. We can do that. 
Oh, how little they knew. Jesus said, okay, you'll get the suffering. But you know what? I can't promise the glory. Verse 39, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it's been prepared for those for whom, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. These words, Jesus puts James and John back where they need to be. Rather than seeking status, he says, I can't promise you status, but I can promise you suffering, is what he said. And they had suffering. James and John suffered mightily. James was the second martyr in the church behind Stephen. Acts chapter 2, verse 12 reads of how James was put to death with a sword at the order of Herod. This came less than 10 years after Jesus spoke these words to James. Died, just like Christ did. John suffered greatly. He spent his final years in exile on the island of Patmos as a prisoner due to his faithfulness to the Word of God and his testimony of Jesus. Now, when you think island, don't think Hawaii or Tahiti. Think Alcatraz. That's what it was. It's a prison base. Hot, rocky, uncomfortable. That's where John lived out his days. James and John drank from the cup of suffering now, in the end, they did, they did obtain a level of status, a measure of that. In Revelation, you can read that the names of these two men will be inscribed upon two of the twelve foundation stones among the other twelve apostles. But other than that, we don't know if they obtained any other position of prominence or will obtain. I mean, when we someday get to glory, we can look at Jesus. And, and if, if your eyes will let you to take your eyes off Christ and look just to the right or just to the left of Jesus, you'll be able to see whether James and John actually made it. My guess is to the right or left of Jesus is nobody because Jesus said, my glory I'll give to no other man. Well, servant leadership doesn't seek for status. That's my point. And you know, I don't think that James and John were the only ones who had this desire. In verse 41, we read that the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. They discussed before already about who was the greatest. And now James and John opened the crack and had the door and made for their opportunity. And I think that these other disciples, apostles, probably felt betrayed. Maybe they felt jealous. Maybe they felt that there was a broken trust there. Don't exactly know. But they wanted it too. (laughs) Many people seek the place of honor. Many people seek to have positions of, of leadership and authority the wrong way. People go up rather than going down. And Jesus told this parable one time in Luke chapter 14. He was at a gathering of religious folk at a dinner party. And he noticed how the invited guests were all picking out places of honor at the table. You know, everyone was trying to sit as close to the head as possible and kind of jockeying for position. And, you know, maybe they're doing the musical chairs things, right? In the musical chair. And they're trying to kind of push each other out of the chair. Who knows? But trying to get the position of status, and Jesus said, no, you got it wrong. He said this. He said, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. Then disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But what did Jesus say? He said, when you're invited, go and recline at the last place. So when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you have honor in the sight of all. 
who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself, if you try to go up by going up, he says you'll be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's just the way to obtain positions of spiritual leadership is to, is to pursue down, not to pursue a position of status or a position of prominence, but rather it's seeking the work. It's seeking the work. And then, here's, here's how it works. You seek the work of a spiritual leader to serve as a deacon, to shepherd as, a, as an elder, a pastor. People begin to see that and identify that. And other people give opportunities. And then you'll be great. But that's the path. In fact, that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 1, chapter 3, verse 1. He spoke about the one aspiring to the office of an overseer. If someone aspires to the office of an overseer, Paul says, it's a fine work he desires to do. Right? The work is fine. And the work then leads to that. And the work is, is down and dirty. And I just say this, the elders should be shepherding people long before they obtain the office. And deacons should be serving people long before they obtain the office. And in many ways, whether an elder gets an office or not, whether someone shepherding people gets an office or not, he should be content with that. And that's fine. A deacon, whether he gets the office or not, is, should be content in serving. Nothing should change when someone becomes a, a leader in a church. And I just say this to you men who aspire spiritual leadership at Rock Valley Bible Church. I just say, do the work. Do the work today. Get to know people. Serve them in whatever way you can serve them. If it's helping them physically, it's helping them financially, if it's helping them spiritually, if it's praying with them, if it's discipling them, if it's whatever it means, right? Share your life with them. Share everything about them. And you notice you do that with people, your gifts will be evident and seen by all. And the Lord will then exalt you in the proper time. You don't just exalt people and then they start doing the work. You see the people doing the work and God will exalt them in the proper way. And I just say that's what servant leadership is. It doesn't seek for status. It seeks for the work, which is really what my third point is. Servant leadership wants to serve. Servant leadership wants to serve. Servant leadership is in it for the work. Calling them together again. He says, okay, guys, let's have another huddle here. You guys are indignant at James and John because you're jealous of them, or they asked first. And James and John, you got it wrong. Let's come together. Let's 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 hear this again. <clears throat> he said, "You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, for the great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all." For even the Son of Man, Jesus Himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. <laughs> you know, Jesus had called this play before. Back in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, He sat down with them, called the twelve in this huddle, and said, okay guys, if anyone wants to be first, he should be last of all and servant of all. It's almost exactly what verse 44 says. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. It's like they didn't get it through their thick skulls. It's like they need to be told several times. I understand why they need to be told several times. 
Because I need to be told several times. It's a lesson that I need to learn. It's counterintuitive. Everything within us thinks the opposite. We think the way to get to prominence is by being first in the line, right? We think the way to, to, um, to the best and the top is to assert ourselves to be first. But that's simply the way of the world. See, there's a way the world seeks to lead and there's a way that God seeks for us to lead. The world looks out for number one, like verse 42 is talking about, right? They, they lord it over people, exercise authority over them. And the world says, well, if somebody's in your way, do what you can do to get them out of your way. Intimidate them. Raise your voice. Threaten them somehow with your authority. Maybe your anger will intimidate them to get what you want so you can get where you want to go because ultimately that's the most important thing, right? In the workplace, bosses use their authority to squeeze their employees to do what's required of them. People in the world are boastful and arrogant and will use whatever's in their power to get their own way to move up the ranks in power. Just how it works. You see people jockeying for position. <laughs> you guys see this, especially coming up the presidential election. All these people jockeying for position, always putting their best face forward and always smashing these other people. Maybe you remember the time when Solomon died. Rehoboam, his son, took over the kingdom. And he sought the elders of the land and the elders gave him the counsel, lighten the yoke which Solomon put on the people and Rehoboam So these elders told him, lighten the yoke. Lift up. Solomon was hard, but you be lighter and you'll have the people. Rehoboam listened to the younger men. He told the people, listen, my father made your yoke heavy. I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And you know what happened? He lost the ability to lead. He split the kingdom. Ten tribes in the north said, we don't want this Rehoboam guy over us. We'll, we'll pull Jeroboam over us. And Rehoboam was in the south, two tribes. That's all that was left, Benjamin and Judah. That's how the world works. Intimidation. And you know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Jesus said, but this is not to be the way among you. God's people is different. Rather than leveraging authority, God's leaders are to be servants. God's people are to be slaves. In fact, the greatest spiritual leaders are the greatest of servants. That's what 43 and 44 says. Whoever wishes to become great among you, shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. It is interesting here that at this point, Jesus doesn't at all diminish a desire and aspiration to be great. He's just telling you the way to get there isn't by self-promotion. He's saying the way to get there is through humble service. About five years ago, Avon and I celebrated our 10th anniversary by going on a cruise to Alaska. And uh, we were given this cruise as an anniversary present by her parents. And um, some of you been on cruises before? The whole object of a cruise is to pamper you. Isn't that right? That's the whole deal. They want you to utterly relax. We'll take care of everything. All the crew members are around to serve you and to serve your greatest need. When you arrive, you put your luggage there in a big pile, you put a little tag on it, and you go on your merry way. And almost like magic, that luggage shows up in your cabin. Now there's someone lugging those things all around. You can eat as much food as you want. 
whenever you want. Chefs are always available. We'll fix up the food exactly how you want. Waiters come. Every night, a six-course meal. Fix you any kind of food you want. Eager to get it just right. Is that how you want it? Is that how you want it? We'll do it just like you want. Your cabin, meticulously cleaned every day. I remember coming to a room at evening. We went to this, to our, our cabin. Our bed was made perfectly, like not a wrinkle at all. And on our pillows, do you remember? A little piece of chocolate. Just trying to make it sweet. Now imagine Jesus on a cruise. And uh, Jesus asks you or says to you, do you know who the greatest person on the ship is? Oftentimes wealthy people on cruises, right? Maybe someone real important, maybe some dignity. You want to know who the greatest person on the ship is? He said, let me show you. And he would take us down into the galley way down there and back around the corner, right, with the, the dishes and the washing machine and the person who slaves away 18 hours a day for $20 a day, whatever they get. That person is truly the greatest. That's how radical this is. The slave of all, the servant of all, is actually the greatest. It's God's way. The way up is down. It's the poor in spirit who are rich in the kingdom, right? It's those who mourn who will be happy. It's those who hunger and thirst who will be satisfied. It's the persecuted who are blessed. The broken heart is the healed heart. The contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. The repenting soul is the victorious soul. To have nothing is to possess all. To bear the cross is to wear the crown. And to give is to receive. That's how it works in the kingdom. That's how God works it. It's the thrust of Peter's exhortation to the elders of the churches. He said, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. You know, effective spiritual leaders are those who demonstrate their heart for people by loving them and serving them. And that, quite frankly, is how you influence people for the kingdom of God. And you know what? I, I know of my failings in this area. They are ever before me. I know of my lack of loving and serving you all. I know my lack of loving and serving people as I ought. And I know that as I fail to love you and serve you, that my leadership fails as well. It's a direct correspondence to that. So I'm not, I'm not common as one who's got it all figured out. I'm common as one who says, and reminded myself again today, I need to be a slave of you all. I want to serve all of you. It's my role as a pastor of the church. And what's great about Jesus is that He showed the way he didn't say, well, do as I say and not as I do. None of that in Jesus. He said, do as I do. Verse 45, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Oh, this is good. The Lord of the universe didn't come among us to enjoy the pleasures of life, tanning on the beaches of Hawaii, living a life of luxury, being served by crew members on a cruise ship. No, when Jesus came to earth, He came as a servant. He came as a servant. He came to serve. He came to help. He served in life and He served in death. I mean, think about His life. Everything that He did focused on other people. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He made blind to see. He made the lame to walk. He made the deaf to hear. Nobody ever left the presence of Jesus. If they came to Him with an illness or a sickness, nobody ever left still ill and sick. 
Matthew 4.23 says He healed all diseases and all sicknesses among the people. Heal them all. On the night when he's betrayed, boy, did he give an example of his service to his disciples. Right in the upper room, his disciples gathered all around him. Remember what Jesus did? There was no servant to wash their feet. And so Jesus got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, girded himself, poured water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. In the day, that was like the lowest task of the day. Reserved for household slaves or servants. Come wash my feet. And Jesus, the Lord of all, washed their feet. And then he explained in, in John 13, 12 and following, he said, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. And the admonition today comes straight to us, to all of us. You're blessed if you do them. You're blessed if you serve other people. Whether well, it's Doug Sosnowski or Lance Milton or Gordy Bell or Steve Brandon or Andy Krauss or Randy Robine or Jennifer Garden or Carissa Brandon. We're all called to be servants. We're all called to be servants. And especially for the leaders in the church, right? Leaders in the church need to be servant leaders. That was his life, Jesus demonstrated being a servant. He also demonstrated being a servant in his death. He died to redeem His people from their sins. As it says here in verse 45, the Son of Man gave His life as a ransom for many. Now, when you hear the word ransom, what comes into mind? First thing, ransom? Kidnapped. Someone is taking you hostage and taking you away and the the one who's kidnapped you demands this ransom and so you pay this ransom and so you have money for the person. Well, that's the picture here. Our sins have held us hostage And to be freed from our sins, we needed someone to pay the ransom price. That's what Jesus did upon the cross. His blood is what freed us from our sins. It's His blood that that paid the price so we could go free. And you know what? When we're free, you know what we're free to do? We're not free to do anything we want to do. We're free to do what's right, right. We are now free to serve. And those who lead the church need to be servant leaders. Servant leadership is willing to suffer. Servant leadership doesn't seek for status. And servant leadership wants to serve. Oh, may this be true of every leader at Rock Valley Bible Church. Let's pray together. Lord, I would pray on this special day as we install Doug Sosnowski after a few songs here. I pray, Lord, that You would be working on all of our hearts to be servants, especially on His, especially on mine, Gordy's and Lance's, future leaders. Lord, that we would not lead by appointment, status, position, but we would lead by service to do whatever it takes, to hang around till the service is done, to speak with anybody, 
to meet with people in the week, to give ourselves, to labor on, to spend and be spent for the benefit and the good of others. Lord, that's what qualifies and that's what, that's what helps and that's what sustains leadership in the church. I pray you'd, you'd help me in my lack. Lord, I see the call here and um, see clearly where I lack. And pray for the other men. I pray that you would help them where they lack. May we be slaves, slaves to those here in the church. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.